Good evening. Uh, I'm Larry Gibson. I teach at the University of Maryland uh, School of Law. And it's uh, my uh, pleasure to present to you this uh, evening's uh, author. Uh, Hal Qualwalzer is really one of just a handful of people that I'm willing to describe as having known uh, as being a genius. And because uh, I use that word really sparingly, but, but I think Hal really is. Um, and and, and, and he, he has a special kind of, of genius. Uh, and that is a, um, an ability that's um, almost superhuman to, to uh, manage large amounts of data, of information of different types and from different sources coming in different forms, uh, complicated stuff, voluminous uh, stuff, and to uh, uh, organize it, uh, to figure out what it says, to sort of synthesize it, and to not only then himself understand it, but to then simplify it and interpret it and explain it to people. I, I, I don't know of another person who can do this particular uh, thing as well. Uh, I, I watched this firsthand uh, in uh, 1995. That was the year, I think, uh, we met. Uh, at that point, I was the uh, campaign manager for um, Mayor uh, Kurt Spoke, and he was running, he had completed two terms and was running for his third uh, term. In a hotly contested race, his opposition was uh, Mary Pat Clark, a very popular president of the city council. And we know, knew that uh, Kurt had done a, a, a good job uh, in managing city government, but as is often the case, uh, the record was sort of dispersed throughout lots of different parts of, um, of city government. Uh, even within his own office, there would be different pieces here, or some of the information there. Uh, various uh, uh, city uh, agencies. Uh, in addition to that, there were like the independent boards and commissions. And Mayor Smokes wanted, and I agreed with him, that it would be great if there would be a way of, of pulling all this together and, and simplifying uh, it. And, and we heard about uh, 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 Hal Qualwazer and then eventually uh, uh, brought him on board to be the uh, consultant uh, to the campaign and in, really to the administration and see if this was done. We hadn't seen this done in any particular place, but it seemed sensible that it, it needed to be done, but uh, the information was um, multiple sources. And it was just my delight to, 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 to watch uh, how operated operate. He first just said, just, just give me all of the stuff. I mean, we, we, the, 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 we contacted every agency of city government, the health department, the public works department, the uh, uh, Department of Education, um, the various the licensing board, the historical Pres preservation, 
And we, we boxed these things up and we kept saying, what is he going to do with this? this is the, the, I mean, we're talking hundreds of boxes of materials. It's no human being is going to work with this. But he kept saying, is there anything else? Is there anything else? And, and then we come in another load of, of cartons. And he, he, he took them someplace in Washington or D.C. I don't know where. I, I don't even know where they went to. But uh, uh, they left. And he did exactly what we wanted to do. When it was all said and done, all of this information was uh, uh, distilled into two types of documents. Um, Mayor Schmoke said, I, I don't, I've seen reports that, that are citywide that sort of explain in a general sense what, what a particular administration has done. But the average voter wants to know, what have you done in my neighborhood? And what Hal did was to take the city of Baltimore and uh, divide it up, and we gave some advice in this, into 50 units. These weren't units that already existed, but they were just the neighborhoods, and, 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 but all of Baltimore uh, was divided into, for purposes of this uh, uh, work, in the 50 units, and then he produced a report uh, understandable for each of those units that essentially said what city government had done in that one-fiftieth of the city. What had been done with schools, what had been done with public works, what had been done with recreation centers, etc. How many times the mayor had been in that, he, he took the mayor's whole schedule of, of, of all for, 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 for eight years and we were able to tell each neighborhood how many times he had set foot in that particular neighborhood, and it was, I've never seen anything like it since then. So one could conclude, okay, this is a person who has a particular kind of, of, of skill that's unusual, and maybe even in that's a bad of genius. Then the election was over, and how uh, went about his uh, uh, events, uh, doing his things, and the next thing I know is we, while well, we all get involved in the re-election re 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 of, of Bill Clinton, I was the state chairman of the, the Clinton-Gore campaign the first time, and we were involved uh, uh, in, in, in his re-election. The next time that I learn about Hal Qualwazer, he's at the Pentagon. Where is he? He's the lawyer for the Pentagon. He, 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 he's, Hal became the deputy general counsel and the legal counsel for the Department of Defense. I mean, the whole Department of Defense. I mean, there, 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 were, there were lots of things that President Clinton wanted to change uh, uh, about various aspects of the way the military operations of the country uh, were organized and, and, and the way the, uh, the Pentagon spent money and lawsuits by and against the uh, uh, the Department of Defense, and how throughout the second term of the uh, Clinton administration managed all of that. Now, just how different is that from the details of delivery of service to a local school system to the U.S. Department of Defense? Okay, so then I went about my other activities and sort of lost track of, of how... The next time I, I, I learn about him and I'm in touch with him, the, the, that's the, the Clinton administration is over, Al Gore 
has lost, or at least the Supreme Court says that he's lost, and so the Democrats are out, and so Al is out. Uh, he's in Los Angeles. What is he doing in Los Angeles? He's the lawyer for the um, unified Los Angeles school district. This is the third largest school system in the United States, and uh, they have been in the press a lot with lots of different issues, but a, trans, but a, a school system that was in transition. And there was Hal Qualwalzer moving from the Pentagon and uh, the U.S. Uh, military complex to this large school uh, district. And now we have why, why he's here today. Uh, he, at some point, apparently, uh, decided that uh, there needed to be some, there were some issues in public education that needed to be addressed. And uh, I think we universally uh, think that public education is failing an awful lot of, of, of young people. So Hal decided he would figure out what was wrong. And that's what this book is about, not only what was wrong, but how the problems should be addressed. And so he proceeded to go around the country to about 40 different school districts, talking to hundreds, probably thousands of educators and parents and uh, political uh, figures, and uh, producing, again, a, uh, a synthesis uh, that's clear, that's, uh, that's understandable, with very concrete and very precise recommendations as to what needs to be done to straighten out public education in the uh, United States. And that's what the book Renewal is about. And I guess he'll tell us some more about, uh, about this and what his ideas are. And so it's my pleasure to present to you one of the few people that I'm willing to call a genius, Hal Qualwazer. Well, it's hard, it is hard to follow that introduction. Let me see if I can live up to it. First of all, let me say to the people at the Enoch Pratt Library, uh, thank you for having me. Um, I think the last time I was here was, in fact, in 1995 to carry out one of those boxes of uh, um, press releases and other purported accomplishments that the staff at the library thought one might make reference to in a campaign. Um, well, it's the beginning of school year. It's a good time to talk about schools. And so let me start with about five minutes explaining a little bit uh, about why I wrote the book, um, then give you just sort of an overview about how the book is structured, um, then let me do sort of the highlights, and let me close um, by going over two chapters in the book about common beliefs and practices that are shared by most high-performing schools. And somewhere along the way, maybe I'll throw in a few provocative things that people can uh, cross-examine me about when I finish speaking. And I promise we'll do this in 25 minutes, so you, there's plenty of time for questions. When I was the, hired as the general counsel of the Los Angeles Unified School District, I took the job because um, when I'd first gone to Los Angeles in the 1960s, it was a pretty good school district. And I'd watched over a course of 40 years as it had deteriorated. 
And when another old political client of mine, Governor Roy Romer, became the new superintendent in 2000, and he found that I wanted perhaps to come back to Los Angeles to practice law, he offered me the job of being his general counsel. And I jumped at the chance because Romer was committed to reforming the schools and trying to uh, rebuild what had at one time been a very proud school system. Short answer is we failed. We failed miserably. Um, the school district was dysfunctional and unfortunately in many ways it remains dysfunctional. But as an old political consultant I started to think about why it was that we had failed. And there were undoubtedly many reasons, but one of the most troubling was we had no parental and community support. Um, Roy Romer would propose some reform measure and I would be sitting there at the horseshoe looking out at a very large school board meeting room and no parents, no PTAs would rise up and say that's a good thing. And ten people who were enamored of the status quo would get up and denounce us for some terrible idea that we had just proposed. And the net of it was, at the end of the day, after Romer had been there for six years, we really never accomplished much that improved the instruction given to our kids. So I took away from that the conclusion that if you're really going to have reform, parents and community leaders have to be involved. But of course, mere involvement uh, doesn't necessarily answer the problem. If you're a bull in a china shop and don't know what you're talking about, your involvement is hardly helpful. So that's where the book comes in. Because the book not only urges you all to become more involved in schools and school districts, even if you don't have kids in the district, but it says, okay, I understand you're now ready to be involved, but you don't know what you're supposed to be doing. Okay, read the book. Because the book is a handbook for how people um, should approach the challenges of reforming and sustaining high-performing schools. Um, it, it's a handbook that really includes even a crib sheet. One of the appendices is a six-page list of an entire uh, agenda for how to build and reform the public schools. Here's how I did it. 2008, school reform is becoming a bigger and bigger national issue. And I'm listening to what people are proposing by way of so-called reforms. And I shake my head and I say, this is never going to do it. This just isn't right. This is, they're just, it's just off point. So I said, well, I want parents involved, but they've got to have a better understanding or else these reforms will be adopted. People will think they will have done something wonderful and it will turn out not to have moved the needle at all. So I said, how am I going to demonstrate what in fact does work? And the answer, as John Belushi once said in some movie of long ago, road trip! <laughs> so I diligently searched out 40 high-performing school districts around the country. High-performing because they'd won the Baldridge Award, uh, which is given by the National Institutes of Standards and Technology to school districts that represent excellence in education. Um, 
I searched out the winners of the Broad Award. For mo those are districts that the Broad Foundation determines are the most improved urban districts in the country that year. Um, I went to districts that among the peers of the realm, um, districts where they thought there had been substantial improvement and really good things going on, even if perhaps their scores were not yet high. But given where they had started, these were districts that clearly had an idea of how to do it right. And finally, uh, just because you had to, I toured the big districts, essentially the Amtrak route from Boston to New York to Philly to Baltimore to Washington and the suburbs there around, and Minneapolis, uh, Cleveland, uh, oh, Chicago, Denver, San Diego, and of course, Los Angeles. So based upon all of that, I had my road trip out there, and then I said, now, how, what's the question? What am I going to do? And I said, look, schools are a service business. They rely, they are not, they don't make a product, but what they do is they rely upon, in this case, teachers, to exercise their knowledge to convey it to others. And it's very much what lawyers do, what doctors do. It's a service business. And I said, okay, now, if, what are the key things that you need to know uh, about whether, a, to evaluate whether a service business is doing well? And I said, you know, a management guru would tell you there are four things. Question one, how do you recruit, train, and motivate your leaders? Question two, how do you recruit, train, and motivate your service providers, teachers? Question three, how do you continuously improve and adapt? And question four, which turned out to be a much smarter question than I realized when I first proposed it to myself, how do you not lose sight of the customer? That's a question that you just ask, you, you know, in any B-school formulation of things, you know, how do you not lose sight of your customers? But it turns out that in the world of late 20th century, early 21st century education, it is perhaps the fundamental question for all education and the transaction between kid and teacher. Because in the 20th century, we built up a system of mass production education. One teacher, one textbook, one style of teaching called pedagogy, one classroom. The problem with that was that you did indeed lose sight of lots of kids. You couldn't educate every child if that's the way you were going to do it. What you needed to do was move to a highly personalized, individualized, and eventually digitized system of instruction that takes into account students' different interests, different learning styles, uh, different levels of mastery on the day you're trying to teach them something, different social-emotional development levels. So not losing sight of the customer is, in fact, a fabulous way to frame the great challenge of 20 and 21st century education, which is to move from mass production education to personalized, individualized instruction. But here's the thing. Like with any business, it's not about one thing. What you're looking at is systemic change. If you don't change everything, the stuff you don't change will ultimately undermine the stuff you do change. 
There are no silver bullets. There are no demons. Everybody's probably been a little right and a little wrong over the course of the last 50 years. None of that much matters. What matters is building a coherent system that can support and deliver personalized, individualized instruction. So I went around the country, and I talked to superintendents, I talked to administrators, I talked to teachers, I occasionally talked to school board members, sometimes ran across a parent or two, and um, by essentially asking the four questions, with a few additional amendments, developed a picture of how these high-performing districts operated. Let me give you the top line. Top line one, we know how to educate kids. We know how to educate minority kids. We know how to educate African-American males. If anybody says we don't know how, they don't know what's going on out there. That doesn't mean we do it. But this constant prattle about we need to innovate, innovate, innovate is wrong. I mean, we know how. We can always innovate. We can always do better. But there are no secrets out there. These districts prove you can do it. Second point. What these districts demonstrate is that the best way to transform schools is not by top-down change mandated from Washington or even top-down change mandated from Annapolis or Sacramento or Albany. The best way to do it is to do it locally, do it authentically, and tackle everything. Because the one problem with the Washingtons and the Annapolises of the world is they'll tell you to change one thing. They'll tell you to change another thing. What they won't tell you to do is to change everything. And yet, unless you both embrace the beliefs associated with a high-performing system as well as all of its practices, you fail. You just fail. So the ultimate challenge here is for parents, community leaders, who can watch this evolve day after day to know enough of what, about what they're seeing to hold accountable those people who are doing it and to support those who've got the right ideas, not only with your tax dollars but with votes for school board and with general appreciation for the teachers and principals and superintendents who are delivering high-quality instruction. Now, okay, we've been going... 12 minutes or so, so let me move to uh, briefly describing conclusions. Um, I, this is the part of the book that everybody wants to know about and that I, quite frankly, get very nervous about. And the reason I get nervous is that there are 14,000 school districts in the United States. And each one has its distinctions and unique qualities. And the risk of creating templates is that somebody reads it and says, oh, that'll never work in my district. And sometimes that's true. So, and I recognize that, and I appreciate that of the 40 districts I went to, many people had variations on these beliefs and practices. It's not that this is the unique and only way to do it. But... As I said, if somebody wants a general idea of what it takes to make a high-performing school, I've included two chapters that cover that. Let me do this for the moment. Rather than go into it at length, let me just tick off 
the beliefs and practices so you at least get an idea of what I'm talking about. First of all, on the beliefs. Beliefs are more fundamental than the practices. If you don't have the beliefs, you fail. Practices, you can vary. But the belief structure is absolutely necessary if this is going to work. And belief one is probably the toughest one. Every child can and will learn. And what does that mean when you translate that into English? What it means is, yeah, kids who are poor have a much harder time getting through life. They probably have a much harder time getting through learning. But frankly, it can affect your expectations of these kids. You have to believe, if you're a teacher of these children, that they can learn and that they can excel. If you don't believe that, they don't believe that. You get what you expect. So as much as I sympathize with calls for all sorts of social programs to support kids in poverty, I frankly have a, a sense that every superintendent who confronts this problem successfully says, I recognize that, but frankly I don't care. These kids can succeed and you're going to make them succeed and you can't rationalize that their failure is preordained by their economic and social circumstances. Belief two is every child is going to graduate uh, and every child is going to be prepared for college or career. Um, it's very easy in the world of education to grant degrees based on seat time without really giving a quality education. We do it all the time. We send kids through general education classes rather than college track classes because we think they just can't make it. Um, no. Good districts believe they can teach lots of kids really challenging materials. And kids, surprisingly, or maybe unsurprisingly, rise to the occasion more often than we sometimes give them credit for. Belief three Districts have a mission. Uh, schools have a mission. If uh, teachers and principals and administrators don't believe they have a unique mission to fulfill in the community or with their kids, it's somehow the glue goes. It just doesn't work very well. Belief four, academic preparation is the focus of everything. We don't divert vast sums of money to football, to trips, to other things. School districts are constantly called upon to pull apart the budgets for all sorts of projects. The truth is, however, the laser focus has got to be on instruction and achievement. If you don't do that, ultimately that budget disappears in ways that mean you don't provide good, good instruction. Belief five may be the key. Administrators and teachers trust each other. Um, I've got a piece I'm going to send to the Chicago Tribune tomorrow saying, hey, it's nice that they've settled, but this is just the start because what the strike proves is that Chicago teachers and Chicago administrators don't trust each other, and if you think evaluations and all the other stuff they're about to do is going to work, you've got another thing coming, because without trust, this dies. Belief six is that you really do believe in continuous improvement based upon data. It's data-driven. And if you're really good, you believe in things like total quality management or Six Sigma, um, that often gives teachers the willies. It seems so corporate and so cold. But in fact, uh, if there was one surprise I had in the course of looking at these 40 districts is the profound impact that um, 
this management system called Total Quality Management had on so many high-performing districts. I was really, frankly, taken aback, and if somebody wants to ask a question about it later, we should do it. And the eight practices are, one, they take curriculum series seriously. And they are, you know, we're now about to have Common Core, which are these sort of nationally generated or standards that 45 and a half states have adopted. Massachusetts, uh, Minnesota's a half state. It's taken the English language arts uh, standard, but not the math standard. The other 45 states have adopted these uh, new math and English language arts standards. Um, they are much more rigorous than what existed previously in most states. But what these districts do is far, far more than that. Uh, they understand the interrelationships of math and reading and science. They understand how carefully you have to build on one step followed by another step. Um, they understand that kids learn differently and you have to have different materials available and ready to go so the kids who learn differently actually have access to materials they can use. They take curriculum seriously. This is not a sideshow to the fundamental elements of instruction. They collaborate. Teachers collaborate with administrators. They collaborate with each other. There's nobody closing the door in the classroom and operating as a solo anymore. Um, teachers have multiple roles. They're mentors, they're master teachers, they're not just teachers in a classroom. It has lots of values, but the most important one of which is that it helps teachers learn how to be better teachers. Um, there are big, honking, robust data platforms. These computer things, they do three things for you. One, who is this kid? What do I know about this kid? Well, if you have a big data system that's captured lots of information about that child, you know a lot about him the first day he or she steps into the classroom. That's important. Two, it allows you to give children access to all sorts of content that they otherwise would have a hard time getting. It allows kids to collaborate in ways they otherwise could never collaborate. It is an incredible instructional tool. And three, it facilitates doing assessments. Most of you, I take it, um, are not probably familiar with the term formative assessment. You're all too old because when you took a quiz, it got graded, and that's what it was for. Now, what looks like a quiz isn't graded. It's just to tell the teacher how much mastery you have of the subject. And if you're struggling, you then go to practice six, which is that schools immediately intervene to help out those who are struggling, or for that matter, for those who are way far ahead so they don't get bored. Um, and finally, that there are schools that are safe and civil, which thankfully in most places is not as much of an issue as it was 15 years ago, but it is certainly a predicate for everything else that you can possibly do in a school. Um, okay, two sections of top-line potentially controversial things that somebody will want to react to. One, you can't drive change from Washington. You've got to drive it locally. Two, um, you need money is not as much of an issue as it used to be. It is not perfect. But the solution to schools problems is not by and large money. It may be far more consistent money, even if it's not as much as it used to be, but not constant gyrations up and down. Three, um, we need to spend a lot more time focusing on training teachers in schools initially and uh, 
my incendiary comment is if we closed every college of education and focused on teaching every teacher through a process called alternative certification where third parties or school districts teach teachers, we'd probably be better off than we are today. Four, if there's a great failing even at good school districts, it is that they fail to have an institutional commitment to the social and emotional development of their kids, that kids fail these days as much from a lack of a belief in themselves and an optimism about their ability to control their world as they do from lousy environments and lousy teachers. Um, last incendiary, um, the, the two great hallmarks of the current wave of so-called reform, pay for performance and tenure reform, um, are probably not going to move the needle much and of the two, pay for performance may in fact have outrageously negative effects on the schools. Um, the only other thing I would say is if you want me to blame anybody for the current state of affairs as for example Steve Brill does in a book he wrote called Class Warfare, I won't do it. I think everybody is a little bit at fault and frankly it doesn't matter to me. The point is that you have teachers, you have administrators, you have superintendents, you have school boards. I don't care what sins they committed in the past. The question is, can they all get together on doing it right in the future? So, so far as I'm concerned, we engage in a national amnesty commission for all sins previously committed in school districts and simply look forward and don't look to the past. And with that, I'm happy to have questions. You didn't say much about how much or how about the book itself. I mean, was this a summary of what's in your book, or tell us about the book? Okay, the the book follows those four questions. There is a section, for example, summarizing everybody's answers to how you recruit, train, and motivate your leaders. Um, it is otherwise known as um, sort of a prescription for how. Superintendents are intended to survive both in the community and with their school boards. There are several chapters on how you recruit, train, and motivate teachers. Uh, in fact, they may take up the greatest individual share. There are all sorts of chapters on how not to lose sight of kids. And if there's one thing that I would claim some pride in doing is that I haven't taught in a classroom in many, many years. But the chapters on how you don't lose sight of kids um, have been extraordinarily well received by lots of high-performing educators. And I'm very proud of that because it means, in my view, that not only did I get it, but that I explained it properly. And so I commend those chapters to you um, as probably the, if you will, the most insightful in the book in a way because they really get at the heart of how you keep kids in focus and how you motivate them and you know, give them what they need by way of a 21st century education. So those are the three big blocks. Then there are these two template chapters I was just sort of cribbing from. And then there's a bit at the end about what federal policy should be, what state policy should be, and a chapter on schools of the future. Oh, let me do one more incendiary idea. School districts get out of the business of operating schools. Instead, everybody is going to look like a charter. Traditional schools will become autonomous, and what you will have are 
individual schools looking to fill niches in what used to be um, school districts will now turn into regulators for purposes of ensuring quality and equity and equal opportunity. Um, and I think that's coming and is inevitable. Um, and it's not so much whether you like it or you dislike it, but it's going to happen. And frankly, I think it's a positive development for a variety of reasons I'd be happy to go into. But uh, I think that in 20 years, the way we run our schools will look very different from the way we do right now. Yes? As I said, I'm declaring, I am declaring an amnesty. Uh, no, as I said, I declare an amnesty. And, uh, or I declare amnesia, maybe, is the, is the point. Here's, look, if unions were evil, the South would have great schools because there are no unions in the South. And the schools in the South, frankly, stink. Um, it, is, it is about teacher culture. If there is one thing I am willing to sort of say, not so much about unions, but about the, 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 the challenge here for making the transformation, it is that mass production education, um, where it was one textbook taught one way, was frankly, a lot easier than what we're asking of teachers now. Um, teachers who were in the mass production system may have thought they were working hard, and I appreciate that they, you know, that they felt that way. But quite frankly, differentiated instruction, where your lesson plan has a lifespan of maybe 10 nanoseconds, where you're dealing with kids with different interests and different abilities, and you're trying to capture them <coughs> at their precise level of mastery, and you've got... Um, you know, different strategies other than whole class instruction for instructing kids. This is work. This is tough. But I think the answer to a teacher used to mass production education is, sorry, you're in the buggy whip business. We're now in the automobile age. Just no can do. We hope you can make the transformation um, because we're not going to need your services if all you think you can do is instruct in the style of mass production. And I can understand why some teachers will resist that. You're, what you're putting on offer is a lot tougher vision of their job. And I can then understand why unions, as the means by which teachers give voice to their feelings, will at times resist change because they're reflecting a teacher's disinclination to give up the old ways. I don't view that as evil. I view that as human. My only point is I don't accede to it. Mass production education is out. Personalized, differentiated instruction is in. And if teachers can't adapt, sorry. Yes? I want to roll off the same idea. Um, I've, I've been in education for seven years teaching for six of them, um, and uh, I've never met a teacher who just took a textbook and taught out of the textbook. It's very much the norm, at, at least in Baltimore, which is not the world's best school district, I don't know if you guys know that, um, for, to have differentiated instruction. I'm really, I mean, the vast majority of the teachers I know really do believe in their children, understand that the job is very multifaceted and very difficult, but we're moving towards this. So, so basically, I mean, in a in a perfect butterfly.
People want to evaluate based on numerical data rubrics these things that are kind of intangible and, for example, to do the kind of instruction that you're talking about that's really differentiated, it's really like there are <coughs> 25 of y'all and I'm going to like work individually. It doesn't, it's not reflected very much in my lesson plan. But a million times this past year I got written up because they walked in and what was written on my lesson plan was not what we were doing because I was dealing with the children in my classroom. And a lot of the reason for that was because I was really pushing back against the administration, not in a negative way. I was trying to work with them, but they were really not trying to work with us. And I was trying to push for us being accountable to the students and not to this, like, weird ideas of reform that people were coming out with um, and they wanted me out of the way. Kay. So I want to I say one more point, which is, I, I'm sorry, I think, it's, I think it's Scandinavia, the Scandinavian countries that have a really good um, success with teachers. What they do is tons and tons of professional development and evaluation. That's what you were talking about at the beginning. But what we see is a mass approach to dealing with the teachers with these individualized um, evaluations, but that are on this like really massive rubric. And then, oh, I checked these boxes, so you've got to go to this PD on Tuesday and this. And that's not what they do to really keep teachers. Let me, let me, you've got, you've got several things packed in there. Let me see if I can walk this back in some sense. First of all, remember, this is one of the reasons I wrote the book the way I wrote it was to be able to say there are real places in this country where things are going right. And so this is not a theory book. It may sometimes sound a little theoretical, but it's based on the fact that I've, I can find places that do it and execute it. Second point, one of the things that many of these places do extraordinarily well is teacher evaluation, and they understand it. Baltimore strikes me as a challenge, and a challenge you essentially have in transforming any ongoing institution. It is easier to start over. It's easier to define your culture afresh. Um, and it's easier to have a whole new staff. But, hey, you've got an ongoing school district. It doesn't work that way. But this goes to the system point and to the belief point. I mean, you've got principals, assistant principals, master teachers who've probably been there 20 years who sort of have this old way of thinking. Now, the question is, can you transition them to a new way? You think they have a new way of thinking? This is not my experience. My experience is that the new people who are coming in through new leaders for new schools and the new power master teachers through Teach for America are the ones who have these dogmatic ideas older teachers and older administrators I've worked with care deeply about the children and want to do what's right for the children. That has been my experience. Okay. Um, uh, let me say this. The, the, the challenge, I mean, the, one of the reasons I said this is systemic change, though, is you come in, you have a vision, but you have principles in place, you have assistant principles in place. To get them to sign on to this is not easy. They have fundamental roles. 
you have to work at that as much as you have to work at anything else. And if you don't do that, then other things fail because you can't do decent evaluations. You don't have the right relationship with teachers. You know, they should be collaborating with you, not ordering you. Your point about your older, te your older administrators. She was practically my age. This is not an old. I understand. I understand. No, but no, your your point about your older, your longer standing administrators. Yes. I had the privilege last Saturday in Antietam to talk for a while with June Faust, the first woman president of Harvard in about 370 years. She recommended your book to me. As we were just talking about education uh, issues, because I argued with her that what I miss in school instruction today is facts. You can't do critical thinking without a factual basis. But the, the motto of our teaching model has been for years now, critical thinking. You can't think without facts. You have to learn the facts. And unfortunately, that means 1066 and all that. And I've learned that very well. It took memorization, of course. But that was the value in the 50s. Baltimore, I'll just give you one school. Yeah. City College, third oldest public school in the 50s got more kids like me into Harvard, Yale, Princeton, than private schools that parents were paying a fortune to send their kids to, like Gilman, you know, yeah. Park School, and so forth. And when I got to Harvard, or should I say Adam, um, I learned that my teachers had prepared me very well for that particular institution. These were top people. They loved us. We loved them. They were characters, great characters. I can still imitate many of their techniques, and I adapted well, them. Let me, let me since then, city with the changes in Baltimore, white flight, black majorities, and so forth, the, the, the school began to lose patronage. People would come from all over to go. It had to close, I was told. I, I learned all this recently. It had to close for a while. It reopened as a co-ed school and is doing very well. But it will never recover that okay. reputation. Let me stop you. The, the thing I want to extract out of that comment is thinking about what it was in the instruction you got in the 50s that, um, that worked. Because part of this is constantly focusing on what it is that actually affects the student-teacher transaction in the classroom. If you had teachers who challenged you, that's important. They had high expectations. You had to rise to them, and they pushed you on it. Two, if you were at Baltimore City College in the 50s, you were doing, yeah, you may have been doing lots of content, but you were also doing a lot of critical thinking, a lot of skill honing. And three, you had, I assume, frankly, pushy parents. And, um, Actually, no. No? Not because one of the Because one of the things um, about those schools is they tend to have you know, parents who are highly supportive. Although what I would bet is that in Baltimore City Schools, City College in the 50s, if a kid could get in who was nonetheless disaffected, um, teachers would spend some time with that child and push them along. That was sort of part of the mission issue about 
Baltimore City College. And that's fundamental. And the challenge isn't that teachers haven't ever done that before, but the question is whether the teachers and the administration understand that they really need to do it for every child who really is disaffected, lacks motivation, has a supportive adult. That's a big difference. It's not, it's not what the teacher elects to do. It's that the school understands that's an institutional commitment to every child. All my good teachers, none of them had certificates in education. They were simply well-educated. They were Johns Hopkins. Uh, and as the rules started to apply, like for example, when I graduated, uh, Robert Frost could not have gone into a public school teach poetry well well, but that goes back by the way to this point about alternate certification is that every superintendent I talk to says I don't want somebody who's learned how to teach math I want somebody who can do math we'll teach them how to teach it they're much more focused on people who have mastery of content and requisite skills and you know quite frankly if you listen to superintendents uh, yes, there's no doubt that there is a professional intellectual part of the background of teaching and how kids learn. But, they, but when you cut to the chase, this is a vocation. That 90% of this is vocational training by doing it with master teachers, by being observed and, and working with mentors. That's how you learn the business. And I think it is the reason I've sort of come uh, to that slightly inflammatory view about closing every college of education in the country. Uh, they're not all bad, but I think that that this issue about you know people who have content skills that they've learned and use is is quite fundamental in schools. And uh, let me change let, if I can. Let me move on to other people. Okay. Yes, sir. I was struck uh, by your comment that we know how to do this um, in America, and I've seen examples that I think bear that point out. I happen to have been. I don't know whether it was luck or just whatever it was, but one of those students at Baltimore City College, very late 50s, very early 60s. I think you were there too, weren't you, Larry? Yeah, I'm 60. What year are you? Uh, 55. Okay. And I, and I got there, I believe, in 60. I believe, somewhere around that. And one of the things that you mentioned about the commitment, wanting to get this right was absolutely true. We benefited, we being young African Americans, because there was so much commitment to do it right and it was almost as if the coffee dripped out of the cup onto the saucer and we benefited from the drip. I don't know whether the teacher got up that morning and said, I'm going to make sure these African American kids get this, but we got it and we got a real good sip of it. This is where I want to head. If we know how to do this, why don't we do it? Um, let me uh, direct your attention to a school that's about five blocks from here. It's called St. Ignatius Loyola. I love St. Ignatius Loyola. And the reason I love St. Ignatius Loyola is they get it they get it so good. Here's what they do. Their mission, they're a Jesuit school, and they, they follow a, a, a theory um, developed by a group of Jesuit schools called Miguel Nativity Schools. Um, their, 
thesis is this. They will take African-American males, or predominantly African-American males, at the end of fifth grade out of the Baltimore City schools. They will not only give them good instruction for the next three years, but they will instill in them a belief in themselves and a confidence that they can conquer the larger world such that those kids will want and be able to go to high-performing parochial or residential prep high schools, and their goal is to send them off to those things for high school. And they, they're working um, with – the whole structure is different from a typical public school. It's a 10-hour day. They come for breakfast. They're organized into advisories so that there's a lot of peer support because the, these are eight kids who are going to stay together for the entire time there at the school. They have teacher mentors, same teacher mentor for the three-year period for the same eight kids. They talk. They work together. And what the, what the school sort of works around are, are at least two very fundamental attitudinal pieces. One is... A lot of these kids come from tough parts of town, from the west side, you know, from um, parts of the city that are pretty hardcore. And um, they, they sort of keep in focus um, a question that a very famous education sociologist named James Coleman raised about 45 years ago. He went around in a national survey uh, that was um, required by the 1964 Civil Rights Act and he has 645,000 kids the following question. Do you believe you can control your environment? Surprise, surprise, the kids who said they could control their environment did a heck of a lot better in school than those who said they couldn't. And if you think about that, it makes perfectly good sense. If you live in a tough part of town and your brother got shot yesterday and your father's an alcoholic and you, know, you barely have enough food on the table, um, your worldview may be that the world is going to do to you more than you're going to do to the world. Well, if that's your worldview, how do you convince a kid that he should study hard and go to college? It's just not there. And then the second thing that the St. Ignatius Loyola focuses on is kids who are trapped in low-income communities frankly look out at the bigger world and don't know it, don't understand it, and are scared of it. So again, if you're selling college, what are you selling college for? You're selling college as an entry to that bigger world. Hey, but I'm scared of it. I'm not, you know, this is not an attractive proposition. I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm not happy. I'm not, I'm not looking to enter this bigger world. So what St. Ignatius Loyola does very consciously is convince kids they can control their environment, they can control their fate, that there is an inherent ability in each of these young African-American males that they can succeed. And the second thing they do is they take these kids everywhere. They take them to colleges. They take them to these residential uh, prep schools they want them to go to. They take them to restaurants. They take them to museums. They are going to demystify the larger world. They are going to make these kids believe that they want it, they like it, and they can function in it. And then they can make the sale that working hard every day and going to college is a good thing and that these kids really should expend all the effort required because it will result in something good. And then there's the corollary, which is that every one of these teachers, none of whom are certified, many of whom in fact are white and middle class, believe in these kids, they believe they can do amazing things, 
and they push them to do it. And the kids are instilled to push each other to do it. These advisories are great peer support. It is a marvelous system. Why don't, second half of your question, so why don't we do that everywhere? One, there's some money involved, no question. Uh, two, uh, I think the education establishment believes that that kind of um, support system is for parents. Not my job. I don't have to do that. I shouldn't have to do that. I think that gets instilled in colleges of education and carries forward for the rest of school life. Look, I have a very funny sort of quick story. I asked every superintendent, why are the kids in your district who are not succeeding, not succeeding? And, they, and the answers were either, well, there's no supportive adult in their lives or their home life is lousy. And I sort of take those two to be the same thing. And I said, so what are you doing about it? And they said, well, we have a parent involvement program. And I said, so how's it going for you? And they said, not so good. And then I said, so what's plan B? We don't have a plan B. And the little voice in the back of the head said something to the effect, so let me get this straight. This superintendent's job is dependent on those standardized test scores. He's got kids who are not doing well on these scores. It is in his interest or her interest to get these scores up that the reason they're down is this lack of support. And yet, he's not doing anything about it. What's weird? What doesn't make sense here? But that's American public education today. So part of it is, not my problem. I'm just supposed to not have to do that. And I won't. And part of it's money. But... Um, Oh, and I uh, let me just say when I did a book thing in in Miami in May, the publisher of the Miami Herald was there, and he's a big advocate for pre-K. And he stood up and gave the pre-K speech about how important it is. And I think what he was looking for me to do was to say, "Yeah, that's right. By God, pre-K. We really need universal pre-K. Oh yeah, great thing, fabulous thing." And I, unfortunately, wasn't a very good guy, or it wasn't his foil. I said, uh, frankly, uh, nothing wrong with pre-K. I mean, I'm, I get the point about the value of pre-K. But in an era of scarce dollars, if I have just $1 to put to schools that I didn't have yesterday, I'm not going to put it to pre-K. I'm going to put it to whatever it takes to have schools adopt an institutional commitment to the social and emotional development of their kids. If you ask me what's going to move the needle fastest, as much as I like pre-K and as much as I'm not here to speak against it, it's not where I want to put my dollar. I want to put my dollar into doing the kinds of things that St. Ignatius Loyola does. Yes, sir. Yes. Um, I appreciate your passion and energy of commitment, of setting the paper, your thoughts and philosophy. But whenever I hear, as an educator, um, here in Baltimore for several years, using theater and filmmaking for support education and human development, wherever I see an analogy of referencing education to a um, customer service or any sort of business paradigm, 
um, knowing what I've learned over the last 17 years and where I have been impactful in elevating the lives of children and even their families, I must respectfully um, completely disagree with you. Before I came here this evening, I made four parent phone calls. When I leave here, I've got to make two home visits with two young men in seventh grade who have had extreme acting out behavior. If I do not do that tomorrow in my class at 9 p.m. on the east side of Baltimore, there will be absolute chaos if I do not follow through as an educator on what I said I was going to do. Not to be punitive, but for them to let them know that I've learned yeah. that when an adult says they're going to do something, when I say that your talents and abilities should be appreciated and therefore you should take it seriously, if I don't show them by doing it, it will not be done. Sure. I'm, I'm just so concerned as a person of color involved in the educational system. It's been very frightening to me that people of color, particularly African-American children, Latino children, and even poor white children who, don't, who have a marginalized voice too, have been sort of arbitrarily experimented upon. Because like Teach for America and New Leaders for New Schools, I have been subjected to new leaders from new schools administrators. I have been subjected to Teach for America teachers that haven't even survived just to get their masters and go about their business or couldn't even cut six months. So what I'm saying to you, for me, it's a higher human development commitment. It's not that quantitative corporate measurement of X equals this, you provide service X, it comes out. When you're dealing with human empowerment, sir, respectfully, education does not fit that paradigm at all. Um, let me, let me uh, frankly, dispute everything you've said, and here's why. I don't think you know what I'm talking about, and I don't mean that in a negative sense. I think you haven't been exposed to this stuff. As I said before, one of the things I found most extraordinary, and the only thing that surprised me, when I went out in the field, was the power of things like total quality management and what it meant to schools that had adopted it and embraced it fully. The transformation of those schools was just breathtaking. And if you understand what this system is, first of all, go get a Deming book. I, I don't have enough time. But it will do a lot of things that you think are right. It worries a lot about collaboration of teachers. It worries a lot about customer satisfaction. Believe me, that's what you're talking about here, about paying attention to kids. And it, it suggests a way of discipline about how you approach things. You know, and part of it is if you do it right and you have the right values, good ideas get rewarded because they get demonstrated to work and bad ideas fall away. But, you know, this is a longer conversation. I hear that often, and I think you're just frankly wrong. And I don't want to sugarcoat this because I think it is important for you to look at this and say, he's so insistent, let me at least see what he's talking about. Go get a Deming book. W. Edwards Deming. Go get this thing, read it, you will see what I'm talking about. And as I said, it's one of the reasons I went out to 40 school districts so I could see reality and not simply theory. It is powerful. 
Now, it's got to be done right. Like a lot of things, you can screw it up if you don't have the right underlying values. But in places that have been done right, it is extraordinary. Let me give you one example. I love it because it's Ron Paul's hometown. So you know how conservative this is, right? This is South Texas. It's Freeport, Lake Jackson, Texas. The Brazos Port School District. 1991 is the first year of the Texas accountability tests. Black and brown kids do horribly. It's a mixed district. White kids do okay. Black and brown kids do horribly. Here's the interesting thing that happens. School board. Seven white guys. They had all passed away by the time I went down to investigate, so I never got to talk to them individually. But they are frankly appalled at the size of the achievement gap. And they vow that they're going to fix it. They all work at Dow. Uh, because Dow has a big plant in Freeport. Um, Dow is a total quality management company. And they vow to turn this into a total quality management district. They go solicit a, a new superintendent. And they find this Texas good old boy. He's never heard of Deming. He's never heard of total quality management. And he has that wonderfully slightly psychotic view of the world, which for superintendents occasionally works very well. Um, they send him to the last series of training sessions Deming ever gives before he passes away. Man comes back a complete convert. Now, as I said, I don't want to go into the details of what all this is about, but the guy comes back a complete convert. All sorts of amazing things happen, not the least of which is, remember where you are, schools with majority, minority populations, after a couple of years, wind up with $2,000 more per student per year to spend. Why? Because they have vowed to close the achievement gap, they're monitoring it, they're trying to figure out how to do it, that money counts because they've gone to formative assessment, rapid intervention, need more money to do it down in minority schools. In six years, the Education Testing Service certifies that the achievement gap is gone. And you can all complain about the value of standardized tests. But the achievement gap was gone in six years, certified by the Education Testing Service. It is and was an extraordinary district. And the framework that drove it was this total quality management stuff. Um, it is powerful because it concentrates how you think about your problems. Um, so I understand what you're saying. Heard it before. But as I said, let me frankly disagree with you about this one. That isn't to say that, that all corporate ideas are good. I don't want to embrace that concept. But on this one, you've got to listen to me about this. This is a big deal. And, you know, quite frankly, if, if Andres Alonso had the nerve to try to turn this into a TQM district, you'd be a lot better off. But, it's, look, it's stressful. It's tough. And, you know, he's got enough on his hands. He's, he's, he's taking a pass. He and I have actually had that conversation. But, you know, you should go think about working in TQM district like uh, Montgomery County. Yes, ma'am. Or Waldorf, and what did you see if you visited any of 
Well, um, I did KIPP, Green Dot, and Strategic Education Initiatives, which are all three charters systems, each of which has very distinct management philosophies. Um, what I would tell you is in approaching this, my whole view is I don't care about any of this stuff unless I can see how it tracks to some impact on the teacher or computer and student transaction. You know, if it's not doing that, if, if there's not something going on there, it doesn't matter. Um, and each of them had some impact, some in some cases more positive than others, but in any event distinctive. Was there a favorite that came out of that? Actually, no, in part because um, it seemed that they, you know, they all had strengths and weaknesses, and what the, but the point was that each of them worked best with a different kid. And it gets me, it, it's one of the reasons that I go back to this thing about everybody in 10 years being a charter or an autonomous school, because what I want to see eventually, because I think it's good for kids, is to have a portfolio of schools which try to address particular niches so that kids with different learning styles, different interests, whatever, can try to find a place where they are comfortable. In fact, if you think about schools as a service business, and I know you're already nervous because I've used that analogy, um, there are very few service businesses that try to be all things to all people. The problem with the neighborhood school in traditional form is it tries to be all things to all kids in the neighborhood. And other than being physically close to them, that's a hell of a thing to do. It's very difficult. And no other service industry actually thinks that's a good model where you try to deal with everybody with, you know, with every need. It just stresses your staff in a way that makes it very difficult to deliver high-quality service. So if you can create niches where you have an advantage with particular kids and kids have a particular affinity for that school, and so long as there are enough schools in, enough, in close enough proximity that kids have you know, a reasonable portfolio of options, I think that's good and that goes to some extent to your point that some will do better in Waldorf, some would do better in Montessori, some maybe do better in KIPP. And if they can have those ranges all available, they're likely to do better than the current go to your neighborhood school and try to figure out how you fit in in a one-size-fits-all system. Uh, anybody have not asked? Yes, sir. Okay. Um, there are lots of obstacles. Let me say this. I'm not sure that I'm optimistic. I can see a path forward, but I'm not sure we get there. Here's the path forward. The path forward is we quit trying to change schools from Washington. Um, you know, the last 10 years we've had no child left behind, and the principle in no child left behind is we'll give you standardized tests. You know, if you don't make adequate yearly progress two years running, we, st we will tell you how you are about to change, and it hasn't worked very well. And to some extent, my view about some of the state-driven laws that we're now seeing, uh, like changes in the evaluation laws, are going to fail equally because you can't do it by remote control. What you can do is change the culture and change the practice district by district. It's got to be authentic. Um, so my fantasy, lots of people read the book. Lots of people get much more active and aggressive in their school governance. They drive it from the bottom up rather than the top down. Um, 
They have federal and state laws that encourage that, which they don't now. And you gradually uh, build to some tipping effect where you get enough districts that are doing it right that you know, it sort of becomes a wave. Um, do I think that's going to happen? Frankly, um, you know, I don't know. Um, Democrats in Washington still want to drive it top down. Um, Republicans don't have a clue how they want to drive it at all. Um, and if you look around the country, the number of districts with really active, interested parents uh, who can hold people accountable to doing innovative and good things are few and far between. So I'd say the jury's out. We know how. That's different from saying we're going to. In terms of money, let me just do one thing about money. In the book, I disclose a dirty fact, which is that in lots of areas, the urbans can't complain anymore that they're underfunded. They, in fact, are spending a lot more per capita than the suburbans. Now, you know, we're talking about cutbacks and failures in the last couple of years, but in fact, the, the, the trope of the 70s, that the urbans were poor and the suburbans were rich, is in many places no longer true. That doesn't say, it doesn't address the, uh, the subsequent question, which is, but what about these cutbacks? Sure. Once you start saying, well, gee, you're cut $100 million this year. No, I'll give you $50 million back. Oop, sorry, it's $150 million down. Tax revenue really wasn't what we thought it was going to be. That will kill any school district because you can't plan. In fact, all your administrators do is they spend all their time politicking. Are we firing 50 teachers? Are we hiring 10 teachers? No, are we ending, you know, ending music? You can't do reform in that atmosphere. One of the reasons L.A. failed, in addition to not having parents be supportive, is we went through these crazy budget dances for seven months of the year. You couldn't think about reform because you, you know, it was a question, are you going to hire anybody? Okay, oh, well, we can hire 200. Well, maybe we're going to fire 500. That, that just eats into everybody's administrative time. You can't run this. Look, I would have taken a deal that cut L.A. Unified's budget by three-tenths of a percent every year. Fine, get me down a percent or two. But if you guarantee me a fixed sum that I can work against, I can deal with that. What I can't deal with is, oh, I'm up 2%, I'm down 5%. That makes you crazy, and that sucks all the life out of any intentional effort at reform. So, you know, my view about money is I'm not on a crusade for vast additional sums of money. What I'm a cru on a crusade for, if anything, is money that's stable and money that doesn't have strings. Money, you know, in California, 35% of the money that comes from the state is in a categorical program. I had one lawyer whose sole role in life was to keep us about two inches on this side of, you know, of a criminal indictment because these are, you know, all this money's tied up. We've well, got to use it for this, you've got to use it for that. But what if I don't? Or what if I don't want to? It's not the way I'm trying to deal with things. So, you know, my crusade is um, make it stable and make it string-free and, you know, let me get about the business of trying to build a good school. Um, yes, ma'am. So I have one, one more point over this idea of, like, schools are not just businesses. Um, I, I see your point. I get that if a school an autonomous school or a small school district really wants to look holistically at the children as human being entities who are going to grow up to become members of our society. 
then they can use a lot of these same strategies. There's no reason to reinvent the wheel because they're not really treating the kids like customers or products. They're treating them like individuals who need to be nurtured and taught and grown. And they're just using some of the strategies and we can be uncomfortable with the language if we want to, but that's just the language. The problem is, as you said earlier, one of the reasons you didn't want to give a template is because people are so into grabbing at the skeleton of something and dancing the skeleton around and not getting anywhere. And I'm very concerned with the ideas that you're putting forward that the easiest ones for people to grab onto are the most dangerous if they are done without the social and emotional development of the child and without the, like, without some of the real <coughs> nuanced parts that are harder to do, I'm concerned that the data stuff, which can be really useful if it's, if I mean, if the point is what's the goal, and I'm actually interested in hearing from you, what were your criteria for choosing the 40 successful districts? Look, the criteria, um, in, in some sense were secondary because they were often the criteria used by the awards, you know, the, the people who won the Broad or people who won the Baldridge. But let me, let me give you an example of what, what this is about. Pearl River uh, is, this, uh, is a small town in Rockland County, New York. It's an exurb of New York City. It won the first Baldridge Award in 2001. It is not a special town. Now, it doesn't have a lot of minorities, but it's all blue co- it is blue collar. It's a six-parish town. There are three Italian, three Irish. Everybody goes to building trades meetings except for the New York City cops and firefighters who live there. In 1989, it was one mediocre district. Um, over the course of the next 12 years, it raised its region's pass rate from 72 to 96%. It raised its advanced regions pass rate to 70%. It increased its college going rate from 50 to upper 80s. College going or college the test was college going. Well, there is, although these kids tended to stay. I don't know the, the six year rate, but you had kids who weren't going to college who are now going to college. And they have a whole program, by the way, for picking colleges that, that these kids are likely to succeed in that is brilliant. It's a great computer program based upon prior success of kids from the school district. Um, dropout rate became virtually zero. And it had not been zero before. It wasn't a wildly high rate, but it, it dropped. Um, the, the district itself... Um, fed on its success to the extent that there was open land in the district after it became clear how fabulous the district was. Guess what kind of houses got built in the rest of the district that, you know, they could still have open land. They were a lot fancier than the ones that were there before. And it has done it, just to be clear, although it's not a prime criterion of mine, with the second lowest per capita spending in the county, and bottom quarter in the state. So it's not that these were rich guys who threw a lot of money at this stuff. This is one 
fabulous district, and it works at this with a ferocity that if it didn't scare you, you would certainly you know, just stand back and be admired. They innovate. They try anything. They're disciplined about it, but they have a spirit of innovation and willingness to go forward. And one of the reasons, in fact, is their total quality management district so that ideas get tried out. If they, you know, if they work, they get adopted widely. If they fail, they get put away. Uh, but it's been a formula for 20-some-odd years. This is one of the extraordinary districts in New York State. It's kept it up. Um, and, you know, you can say, gee, there's, it's uh, smacks of corporatism, but on any measure, they've done a heck of a job. Um, and um, so those were the kind of criteria that, you know, they, they got used to, to award them the Baldridge. You know, it's the kind of criteria that uh, Broad uses for, you know, its urban awards. It's not just student achievement tests. And, you know, I think by and large, these are reasonable measures. Um, and, you know, I think there's no one I've talked to who has any doubt that these particular districts aren't worth looking at and treating as, as serious examples of high-quality instruction and, and general education and preparation of these kids for life. Um, one more, and then I guess we should probably call that. Yes, as Jet, did you did uh, I thought I saw? Did I see a hand from somebody who's not asked a question? Okay, yes, sir. Um, Dr. Jack Geckman was the head of the Northfield School District, which was rated very high in Minnesota back in the '60s and '70s. I'm not up on what's happening later, but one black student was thrown out of school because he was considered obstreperous and difficult. There were only about eight black kids in the Northfield school system, a town of about maybe 20,000 normally, even including the two colleges, uh, Carleton mm. and St. Old. But I interviewed this kid. He was being raised by white parents. I think he was adopted. And they were trying to educate him now outside of the school system at home. And at the time, I, I was teaching at Minnesota, so I, I just, I don't know why, but I handed him the book, Milton's Il Penseroso, mm -hmm. uh, uh, a book of poetry. And he read the opening lines absolutely fluently, hence loaded melancholy and so forth. Yeah. I asked him who Cerberus, what Stygian, and so forth, answered beautifully. He was at a level above my freshman students in Minnesota. So I went to Jack, who's an ex-Air Force pilot and the superintendent of the school system. And he's telling me why this kid was you know, so difficult and possibly retarded. So I said, Jack, I'm going to hand you something. Would you please read this for me? And he could not read Milton as well as that 12-year-old. Okay. And I told him so. And since I was the editor of the Pound newspaper virtually got on his knees begging him not to do okay. the story. I said, I won't do the story if you restore this kid into the okay. school system. Let me say this. There's this, this first belief that I quoted, which is that every child can learn, is a big deal. Because It's a big deal. Because what that Northfield School District was doing was 
pigeonholing a black kid in some stereotype that they just thought was whatever. And we do it all the time. Um, I quote from, from Frank McCourt. Anybody know who Frank McCourt is? He wrote Angela's Ashes, but he also was a journeyman English teacher in the New York City schools for 30 years and wrote a book called Teacher Man. And McCourt is perfectly honest. He started off teaching in a vocational school in Staten Island. Now, these aren't black kids, but these are, these are my Pearl River kids. These are the Italian and Irish blue-collar kids. That's who they are. And, as, and McCourt says at one point, I pretended to teach and they pretended to learn. He then goes to Stuyvesant, and of course the world changes because this is a, you know, the best school in the city. It's, you, test to, you have to test in, you know, and he just has this wonderful experience because he has high expectations, and the kids respond. But, you know, when he walks into the vocational school in Staten Island, he's not expecting much, and he doesn't get much. And, and, and one of the challenges... Um, and if you will, one of the sins of both teachers and administrators is they presume a lot. Um, look, I often get told about, you know, oh, kids, it's genetic, you know, and it's. Uh, and I said, well, even if it is, how do you know which kid is which? And look, I think if there's a sin teachers regularly commit that they really need to disabuse themselves of, is that they pigeonhole kids. And I will bet you that there, are, that there are way too many teachers at Dunbar, maybe even some middle-class African-American teachers, who look at that population, look where they live, look where they come from, and think these kids are not going to do much in life. And we'll send them through general education classes, and, hey, you know, if we get them out with a degree, he's terrific. And there will be a few teachers who play differently and who say these kids really can do good and I'm going to push them. And sure, some will fall by the wayside because maybe they really are not capable. But I will be pleasantly surprised every year by the number of kids who will rise to the challenge and do great stuff if I only provide them the right kind of material and hold them to that kind of standard. And um, I think it's, it is one of the sins of, of American public education and it is one of the reasons that this first belief is so fundamentally important in high-performing schools. You've got to believe that every kid, no matter how poor, no matter what race, in front of you can succeed, can just ace the heck out of anything that they put their mind to. And your job is to feed them the material and make them believe they can do it. And sure, some won't do it, um, but I think the genius of these schools is, surprise, surprise, lots of them will. And that that's really the challenge. And it is a challenge that, you know, is um, it's tough to exercise. And when you come in as a superintendent, you know, you say, I'm sympathetic to all the problems, but I don't care. And you've got to be able to do it in a way that makes teachers not feel like they're being scapegoated, but you've got to make them believe that. Um, anyway, thank you very much. I have one of those felt-tip pens. I'm happy to sign books for anybody who wants. <laughs> Thank you all very much. I, I hope you found it enjoyable, and I hope you will buy the book. And more importantly than buying the book, I hope you will participate in the governance of your schools and your school district, and that you'll do it in a smart way. 
and that you will push people to deliver um, the quality of education that we can we can have in this country um, if we only try to to get to get ourselves there. Thanks.